Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. We sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. It's truly a great opportunity to have one of our distinguished thought leaders on the Millennium Live podcast. We had the pleasure to chat with Michael Steep. Mike is founder and executive director of the Disruptive Technology and Digital Cities program at Stanford University. He's author of First Light of Day, set in the year 2045 and exploring the world of disruptive technology. If we're talking about a dystopian future, are we already there? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Millennium Live. I'm joined with Mike Steep on today's podcast. And Mike, before I jump in, do you think you could just give me a brief background on both cyber and tech and what really led you to Stanford? Well, I've had a uh, 35-year career as an executive in technology companies, including um, my last gig was senior vice president at Xerox Park, which was known as a major center for the invention of new technologies, including cyber technologies. And then decided to start a program at Stanford that really involves connecting the dots between early stage technologies and existing corporations who are having major problems in innovation and also trying to understand how to attack everything from security issues to the collection of data. So that program is designed to hook up companies, and we've had now nearly 25 of these companies signed up as members to really understand how to monetize in addition to identifying what the technologies are. And as a result of that, we have had seven major projects this year and three startup companies that have been spun off from the program or you know, involved with the program. You know, when I have you here, the first thing that I immediately want to think of and talk about is your book, The First Light of Day. Uh, Yes, yes. (laughs) And so I was reading up a little bit about it, and I know it's a narrative. It takes place in 2045, and technology truly has changed the world. Can you give me and the listeners a little insight into what technology is discussed in the book? Yes. uh, Well, everything that we are seeing today in disruptive technology is extended into the future to see what impact it will have on our society, our politics, and even our economy. So I decided to write a novel instead of a nonfiction book because I wanted people to experience the changes that we're likely to have through characters. So we can see how the character reacts to disruptive technology in their lives. And one of the scenes in the book, or one of the chapters in the book, has the protagonist, Mikael, uh, essentially going to a therapist that's using a new technique that allows the recreation of a person from the past so that he can interact with them and relive history of what he went through with that individual. Uh, So there's a lot of technology that's being developed in the behavioral technology space that's going to allow us to do things like this. And so what I wanted to do with the book is to illustrate how this technology will impact our society and what the major issues are. And we're already starting to experience it with the pandemic. It's really remarkable how things are changing so rapidly in the way that we are experiencing our lives. So I have a feeling that the book is coming alive, so to speak. Absolutely. And I I know we both mentioned that it's fictional, but would you say this is possibly a precautionary tale for Silicon Valley? Well, Silicon Valley is a double-edged sword and always has been. You know that the original Valley was funded primarily through the Defense Department for missile development. The government needed extremely small, miniaturized semiconductors in order to be able to develop its missile program, and a lot of money was used to subsidize that with the foundation of the semiconductors here in the 1950s and 60s. So it's been a double-edged sword. And yes, we have a lot of consumer technologies, but now what's happening is 
we're having major issues in trying to understand how to develop enough privacy from all of this to protect our own interests. And, and uh, so, you know, throughout history, technology has always been used for good and bad, and that will always continue into the future because of human nature more than anything else. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's an interesting little story in the book about Einstein. Um, Einstein, when he uh, wrote the letter to FDR recommending, you know, that the United States develop an atomic bomb, just before he died after FDR, he recanted everything that he said about it and said that human nature is simply not capable of coping with technology in a positive way. So if he had to do it over again, he would never recommend the development of the nuclear weapons from, for the United States. And a lot of people don't know that. You know, so I think we've got a real issue here of how are we going to deal with the societal impact of technology. We can see it now in just the use of the term fake news and the deliberate changes and videos to represent something that's not real. In many cases, the way our kids and my own grandkids live on devices in a very virtual world instead of a real world, um, but they're beginning to confuse the boundary between both. So I believe that we're actually already starting that path, and it's likely to get a lot more intense as we go forward into the future. I know you mentioned COVID-19. Hold on one second. Jake, enough. My dog is scratching to come sit next to me. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, she's going um, Orbit. Uh, Orbit's my Jack Russell Terrier here. Uh, she's apparently spying out the window looking for squirrel opportunities uh-huh. if he's not next to me it's always a problem but let me jump back in i apologize no problem so of course we mentioned COVID 19 you briefly touched upon that and you just talked about you know the parallels of the media but do you think that what's happening today and what's happening in your book you know presents what could possibly be a dystopian future I believe that if you want to use the term dystopian, that we're already there. And um, if, you, if you take a look at other books, like, for example, Shoshana Zuboff, Surveillance Capitalism, where she's talking about the, how the profit model of social media companies is changing privacy you know, for all of us. If you start looking at what's actually happening or Silicon Valley and how it's developed, we have, for example, in Silicon Valley, the greatest disproportion in wealth uh, in, in the country. We have the one percenters and essentially everyone else in the highest cost of living uh, in the country here. So uh, in many respects, technology has brought us to this point. You know, um, I joke a lot that, you know, if you take Palo Alto, the cost of a house, um, 7500 bucks when the first cyclers were built back in the 70s. And, and now it's $3 million for that same house, almost in the same condition. <laughs> From 70 years old, and a lot of these uh, houses have not been fixed up. Three million bucks in order to be able to buy a house in Palo Alto. It's just getting to the point where it is absurd in the wealth differential. And a lot of that is being, uh, being caused by the explosion in technology that's occurring and the ability of, of a few people to take advantage of that. That's the other thing that people don't understand. There has been a massive explosion in innovation and technology development that is literally exponential. And our ability to keep up with it is, is uh, linear. We haven't been able to keep up with any of it. In the book, by the way, part two is the technologies that drive the novel. Mm-hmm. So it's factual, and it's a synopsis of all of the disruptive technologies that are driving the changes in the part one of the book, which is the novel. So it's actually two parts uh, to the novel. Oh, wow. You know, before I jumped on this podcast with you, I think one of the most important questions and the ones I'm really anxious to hear your answer to is, as a former executive, what really was your motivation behind writing a fictional story? Well, I got to say, you know, um, a lot of it comes back to uh, college days. So I took a course (laughs) way back when in the ancient times, uh, you know, at uh, the University of Pennsylvania uh, with Robert Lucid, who was head of the English department, who was a 
roommate of uh, Ernest Hemingway. And then the course was also taught by some of the novelists of the time, including Norman Mailer. So I got really excited about, in fact, I was thinking I would be a novelist when I first started out, and, and then everything, of course, changed. Right. So I've hearkened back to the ancient times and decided I would take a stab at it. And as it turns out, um, you know, we've gotten some really excellent reviews on the book. It was a hell of a lot of fun to write. Uh, and now I'm uh, working on a second book, which is more of a business book to talk about disruptive innovation, how innovation has changed uh, from the approaches of uh, the past. So I'm going to explain why we've had this explosion in innovation and what we need to do about it inside the company. I was going to bring up how many great reviews you have. They're glowing. I know one of the readers actually described it as one of the books that leaves you talking about it everywhere you go. So given that, you know, if you had to give one main takeaway or a message you really wanted to instill in the audience, what would you say? Well, I have, I think the, the key message is one of which uh, I learned that there, there's both opportunity and dystopia, depending on which end of the, which side of the sword you look at. The huge opportunity that's developing out of this explosion in technology has tremendous benefits across the, the way. For example, there's a new type of chip that's been developed in the medical school that can detect changes in the cancer cells uh, before, uh, before they become malignant. And so um, at a very low cost, and that hasn't been available before, which means that we're going to be able to have a real big dent on what happens with cancer diagnosis in this country. Wow. So, you know, there are other technologies um, as simple as putting sensors in clothing, which is you know, it's not only possible, but you could take a, a patient, for example, who is in a hospital who goes home and has their vital signs read directly from the shirt that they're wearing. It connects up to the Wi-Fi. It actually looks like a common shirt, but um, because the sensors are embedded in it, it's possible to actually pick up vital signs and connect it up to a network. So that could reduce the cost of healthcare substantially. So there's a lot of real positive you know, efforts to develop solutions to problems that we've never been able to solve before. And on the other side of it is a tremendous amount of profit that's being made by social media companies that's driving them to collect as much information as they can about every single individual under the cover of privacy, but in actuality, you know, uh, the ability to sell information that they have as a result of our opting into some of their programs. Absolutely. You know, as I was reading all about your book and as I'm listening to you now, you know, if someone has the book in the hand, in their hand or, you know, they don't know if they should click it online to buy, mm -hmm. what would you say to them to read it? What, you know, whatever they're most comfortable with, you know, I, myself, I buy the electronic versions of books. My wife buys hard copy. She just mm -hmm. hates electronic versions. I like electronic versions simply because read them more efficiently, especially at night. And uh, I can change the font size and so forth because I now have to wear reading glasses for the first time in my life. And they're like migratory birds. Uh, they're everywhere but where you want them to be, uh, you know, at the time that you need them the most. So I'm learning to adjust, and it really does help me if I can have an electronic version of it. Plus, I can take 100 books on my iPad uh, with me. So uh, whenever I feel like reading something, I can just pop on the iPad, and away I go. Absolutely. So it's really up to the user to decide what they want to do and what, you know, suits them the best. Um, since we uh, started publication of the book, we sold over 7,000 copies to corporate executives. Um, it's primarily directed at corporate executives to give them a feel for what innovation looks like uh, for mm -hmm. the future. But it's been, you know, extremely well received for a first-time publication. Anyone who goes online or goes into a bookstore can see that. 
You know, before I let you go, I do want to talk a little bit about your next book. I know you said it's more business focused. It should be coming out at the beginning of 2021. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes. um, It's a business book, but it's, it's basically about disrupting innovation. Our old models of innovation are no longer as relevant as they used to be. And here's why. There's been a huge change both in where innovation is taking place and how much money has shifted into the venture space. So if you take a look at just one statistic, um, we spent over $2 trillion last year on R&D and corporations, but less than 200 billion of that total spend was on what I would call disruptive technologies that will actually make a difference in someone's life. 90 plus percent of what is spent is on uh, incremental versions of the same products and services we already have. And outside the corporation, over $300 billion has been spent on 100% disruptive technology. So for the first time in history, we have more money being invested in high-risk ventures outside the company to drive disruptive innovation than inside the company. And it's really hard for CEOs who are focused on revenue generation and earnings to understand why it is that they can't see this stuff before it actually starts to impact their revenue stream. You know, a startup company comes from underneath and all of a sudden they have issues. And the reason is the companies that are developing the new technology are not where you expect them. They're spread globally in in Silicon Valley and in China and the CEOs don't have any connecting bridge. It's one of the reasons why we created the Disruptive Technology Program to connect the dots. So we've taken all those lessons and we started reconstructing how to put together an effective innovation organization that actually can make a difference, you know, even with corporate cultures that, are, that tend to be very uh, anti-change. And that's what this book is about, the whole new process of innovation and the promise of what it can offer for the future. Wow, definitely looking forward to that. Is there a title to this book yet? No, we haven't worked that through yet. I, we're thinking about disrupting innovation, which is a play on disruptive innovation. But um, that'll be determined later as we get closer to publication date. Great, well, keeping us on our toes for sure. Very good. Just, just the last question for you. You've been a thought leader at both our events in person and now virtually in the tech and cyberspace. Mm-hmm. What value have you gained from working with the Millennium Alliance and how has that continued your education? Well, I'm continuously and- looking for feedback from your members. And, um, you know, last year I did, uh, before the COVID, I did 20 in-person keynotes and saw over 6,000 executives uh, across 20 different industries. And that's extremely valuable because I can bring to them an understanding of what is happening with disruptive innovation. And what they can bring in return is, you know, their reaction to it. They can help me understand how much they understand. And they can also help uh, me understand some of the barriers and issues that they're facing in the real world. So that nice mix is a way of getting grounding. And so that's what I um, get the most out of your organization association, being able to get grounded on some key issues. And I would invite any of your members uh, to submit questions or uh, that they may have and, you know, um, be more than pleased to uh, meet with them or to get answers through email or through other means. Well, we will definitely connect you with anyone who would like to either meet you virtually or maybe in person in the coming months and definitely send along some email questions. Excellent. Thank you so much for talking with me, Mike, and it was great to learn about your book, and hopefully we will talk soon about your next one. Thank you very much, Katie, and uh, you know, thank you so much to your members uh, for all this. Take care now. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to check out some of our other episodes exclusively on Digital Diary.